amen and good morning. Good to be with you again. I am sorry about last week. I was planning on being here. Uh, my family was out of the country and we all tested positive for COVID, which is a whole thing and a story for another day. Um, if you're keeping track at home, that is twice that my wife and I have had COVID now, um, which I just read this morning. The CDC says after the third time, the fourth time is free. So <laughs> something we look forward to. I know it's in poor taste to joke about COVID. I just like, what do you say at this point? I know uh, it's out there and it is moving fast. So thanks for joining us here in person, online, however you're joining us. Glad to be back with you. Um, Last week, we looked at Nahum, um, which we just took one look at, a one-week look at Nahum, where it's really about the fall of Assyria, the empire of Assyria. And it gave us a chance to talk about the anger of God. Uh, this week, we're going to start two weeks out, out of the book of Zephaniah. So find your way to Zephaniah chapter 1. Um, this book is going to give us a chance to talk about the judgment of God. So Anger and Judgment 2022, just off to a great start, um, seems appropriate. When we talk about subjects like this, God's anger, God's judgment, um, this is always the tension, right? Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What a beautiful verse. Isn't that true? No condemnation. We love that verse. Zephaniah 1.17, God says, I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Who's right? Is it Paul or Zephaniah? Who, which God is the real God? The God who says, there is no condemnation. There's just grace. That is what I have for you. Or the God who says, there's going to be some condemnation. Who's right? Have you ever struggled with this in Scripture? Uh, these different passages that speak about these different aspects of God. If you have, you're not alone. There's a lot of theological discussion centered around this question about these seemingly contradictory images of God that we see in Scripture. On one hand, you have this God who is very full of grace, and on the other hand, you have a God who is very full of judgment. What do we do with that? I'm not going to fully explore it today. There's a lot that we could say. I, I do just want to give us a, a couple of handles to hang on to what we're about to read because Zephaniah is going to be a picture of God full of judgment. Uh, and so we, we need to kind of hold that in a certain way so that we can understand it. First, I want to acknowledge this. Kind of like last week, um, can we just acknowledge that judgmental people have totally wrecked the concept of God's judgment for all of us, Right? When we think of judgment or being judgmental, we think about people who are judgmental. We would all agree judgmental people are the worst, right? And why are they the worst? Not because they like pointing out wrong things that other people are doing, although that's a big part of it, but they're the worst because we just know that there's some hypocrisy there right? That there are skeletons in their closet with enough time and enough information that they would come waltzing out and we would say, well, look, you're no better than the people that you're judging. And so that's why we all hate it when we come across judgmental people. They're the worst. The reason we need to acknowledge that is because when we think of God's judgment and condemnation, we should never for a second think that it's the same sort of thing that judgmental people are doing. It's not even in the same ballpark. It is totally 
unrelated to the ways and especially to the motives that you and I have for judging one another. Last week we pointed this out, God's anger, not like human anger. That's relevant again when we talk about judgment and condemnation. Just like God's love is going to interpret his anger, God's love is going to interpret his judgment. God's judgment, it might be hard to receive at times. It might feel harsh to us at times, but it's not mean. It's never mean-spirited. His judgment is always connected to his desire for us humans to experience the glorious dream of his kingdom. That's why he brings it up in the first place. These things that we were created for were love and justice and joy and peace. All the stuff that God made us for, the stuff that ultimately is the only sort of stuff that's going to satisfy our soul. That and that alone is the motive behind God's judgment. And when we come across these passages, uh, especially there's a lot in the Old Testament where God is judging humans and kind of sounds a little bit harsh, we should not conclude that our God is harsh or that God is judgmental like in the way that that pastor we had once was judgmental or that parent or that friend that's always judging people. But rather we should conclude God's judgment reveals how deeply he desires the best for us and how constantly we humans settle for less than what we were created for. That's what his judgment is about. It's not about catching us doing something wrong. God has no, takes no delight in pointing out our wrongdoing. It is about God calling us to the most amazing transformative life possible. And it's also about the fact that our God is unwilling to uh, abide the, all the ways that we rationalize ourselves into something less than what we were created for. He just doesn't buy it, and he's constantly pushing us on that stuff. So when Paul writes, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's true. And what that means is that God has forever forgiven the consequences of the ways that we settle for less. The Bible calls that sin, and uh, he's teaching us that God has forever removed those consequences from us. He's never going to make us pay for those choices that we have to settle for less than what we, created, we are created for. But that doesn't mean he's given up the dream, Right? That doesn't mean that he's just going to accept whatever. He still has a passion for our best. So there's no consequences for God with our sin. Like Jesus, either he paid it all or he left a little bit for us to pay. But we believe he paid it all. There's no consequences for our sin. But also, just as amazing as that, is this God who is fighting for us every day of our lives to step in to the life that we were created to have. That's what he does. He fights for us in that way. He gives us this new identity. He gives us purpose. He gives us community. He gives us all of these amazing things. And sometimes out of his deep love for us, he gives us conviction. He judges some things that we've been doing in a way that leads us to something more. That's not meanness. It's not harshness. It's love. It is love when he does it. New Testament writers talk about this as the loving discipline of a parent. Uh, Old Testament writers like Zephaniah, they're going to use a little bit harsher language for it, but it's the same, same energy. Uh, these passages where God seems harsh and judgmental, uh, let's not just dismiss them, let's not just ignore them because it's a lot easier to just look at Jesus. Uh, I think we should read them and understand the deep passion that God has for us to have real life. 
That's why he brings this stuff up. And maybe they need to sober us a little bit. I think they should sober us a little bit because we realize just how easily we all settle for something far less. But when he points it out, he's not being mean. It's out of his deep love for us. And that's what we need to hang on to is we dive in to Zephaniah chapter 1 because it's going to sound a little harsh to our ears. So let's dive in. Zephaniah 1 verse 1. Verse 1 is not harsh. Verse 1 is delightful. Verse 2, and on, that's a little harsh. So verse 1. Here's what Zephaniah writes. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. A couple things to note. I know these, this is one of those verses that you just like skip over to get to the good stuff, but we should pause and note these things. Zephaniah, he's bringing us back to the people of God. So he is writing exclusively about the kingdom of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and about God's dream for his people in Judah. Zephaniah is the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. You may remember King Hezekiah was the king when Micah was a prophet. We looked at Micah last fall. So this is the great-great-grandson of that king, King Hezekiah, who is a pretty good king. Now, as he mentions, he ministered during the time of King Josiah. I don't know if you know much about King Josiah. He was a really good king of the kingdom of Judah from about 640 to about 609, about 31 years he reigned. And he is a fascinating figure in the Old Testament. Um, you can read all about his story in 2 Kings chapter 22. You should read all about it because there's this fascinating moment where Josiah discovers an ancient copy of the book of the law, which we think is probably a copy of the book of Deuteronomy in our Old Testament. And it was lost to them for years, but Josiah finds it um, Josiah was a really good king. He became king when he was eight years old. His father, Amon, was a really bad king. So he steps into this kingdom um, at, like at a very young age and at a time when like people were really struggling. No one was following God. And he starts to do some really good stuff. There's a lot of judgment prophecies that start happening in Josiah's reign. And what's interesting about Josiah as a man is he listens to them. Like there's these harsh judgments and he says, now wait a second, what's God trying to say? And he's responsive and he is humble to it. Uh, he starts doing a lot of good things like repairing the temple. And while they were repairing the temple, I don't know if they knocked down a wall or something, but somehow they discovered this scroll of the book of Deuteronomy. And they knew Deuteronomy existed, but nobody really knew what it said. It had been lost for generations. And so uh, this king, or I'm uh, sorry, this priest Hilkiah finds this copy and he gives it to the royal secretary, Shaphan, who reads it and realizes immediately what it is and runs to Josiah and gives him this copy of the book of Deuteronomy. And together they read it and they realize, oh my goodness, we are way off. We have missed a whole lot of stuff that was very important to God, and we've been totally ignoring it, and in fact, doing the opposite, like catastrophically so. And there's this moment where Josiah is filled with grief when he realizes how far he has missed the mark, and he stands up and he tears his royal robes. Second Kings gives us this beautiful picture. It's Josiah, Shaphan, Hilkiah, three other guys. They're standing around, they're huddled up. And it's like this moment of great conviction, full of grief. They realize we have made some horrible mistakes and full of humility. They're like, what should we do? How do we get this thing back on track? So what Josiah decides to do is to send these five guys, his most trusted advisors, to the godliest person he knew in the world. 
happened to be a woman, a prophetess named Huldah. And I love that. This was no time for stupid debates over gender roles. They needed to hear from God. And they were humble enough to recognize that the godliest, the most connected to God person in the whole kingdom is this woman named Huldah. So they show up and they basically say, hey, Huldah, we have, we have really missed the mark. We've screwed up big time. She's like, yeah, I know. And they basically just say, Huldah, what should we do? Now, side note. It's not the point of the sermon, but I'm passionate about this, so I'm going to point it out. If you are a man, um, and you know who you are, if you're a man, <laughs> and you are not making time to hear from wise and godly women and let them instruct you like Josiah does here, um, then you are missing part of what God wants to say to you in your life. Now, I would say the exact same thing is true for women. Women also should hear from wise and godly men. Um, we need to, that's how God designed us. We need to listen to one another in order to discern what he's saying. But historically, I don't know if you've noticed, especially in the evangelical church, so many microphones have been dominated by male voices. If you are a woman, it's a little bit easier to get input from wise and godly men than it is for us men. We have to cultivate this ability to hear from our wise and godly sisters so that we can accurately discern what God is saying to us, just like, that, uh, just like Josiah does in the story. Notice this. It is not that no one in the kingdom knew what to do. That's not why the people in Judah were suffering, because no one knew. Huldah knew exactly what to do. The reason the people in the kingdom were suffering was because the men in charge didn't know what to do. And this was the first time that they paused to think, well, we should ask Huldah. We're no better than Josiah. Men, we need to make space to listen to wise and godly women leaders. And if you're a regular part of this church, I know you do that just by showing up here, by choosing to be present here. You do that because we value that here. We want to continue to make that time for wise and godly uh, female voices to speak to us. But I want to go a step further. Guys, if you have a buddy who goes to a church where only men are allowed to speak in the microphone and teach, I, if I was you, if you love that brother, I would challenge him. I really would. Like, there's something to 2 Kings 22. I would show him 2 Kings 22, and I would say, brother, we're no better than Josiah. We need to listen to women just like he needed to listen to this woman. Just like Josiah needed to listen, all of us men need to make time to listen to the wisdom of female voices because God is going to say something maybe a little bit different than what we would hear if it was just our own voices, guys. I digress. I just like to point this out. The Bible's not the misogynistic book a lot of people have said it is. Like it's written in misogynistic cultures, but that doesn't mean that's the message of the book, right? And we see that here in 2 Kings 22. So these guys, they go to hold of they're like, hey, uh, we are lost. We are stuck. We have blown it big time. What do we do? And Holda tells these men, because of your grief and your humility, God is not going to pour out this judgment on the people. And she uses this phrase with Josiah that I think, oh, if you hear nothing else, hear this. She says, because your heart is responsive, because your heart is responsive. When God judged something or said something harsh, Josiah didn't get defensive. He got responsive. And she said, because his heart was responsive, God was going to relent and restore. And that's what he did. 
That's the background of this book. Zephaniah is one of those voices bringing some of these harsh judgments to Josiah and to the whole kingdom. Uh, Josiah is a really great king. He's humble enough to admit that he's wrong and he's willing to listen to God's judgment and respond to it. So that brings us to the judgment itself. Let's look at this. Verse 2 of Zephaniah 1. God says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away both man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. So he's, I mean, he's just getting right into it, right? He's very serious here. He's talking about wiping away everything and just starting over, basically. And it's very general, even the animals. But then Zephaniah is about to get really specific about who is to blame and who God is frustrated with. Listen to what he says. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. So the first piece of harshness is, of course, for Judah, for the kingdom. But it's specific in the kingdom. It is the religious leaders. He's talking about priests, specific priests. They, they would worship God, but they also would worship these really awful idols like Baal and Molech. And, and God says, I, I'm judging this. This is a problem. But he doesn't stop there. Look at who he goes after next. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He's consecrated those who he... Those he has invited on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Now, we're a few years removed from this, so we don't know exactly the people that he's talking about. But I think it's safe to assume that the original readers of this would read that and they would picture faces. Like they would picture names and officials and like people in positions. He's pointing out these people. He's saying their idolatry, their violence, the way they were too cozy with foreign leaders. They cared more about being liked than doing what was right. But then he goes on. There's more. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All you merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. So religious leaders, political leaders, now like business people, he's calling them to account. He's saying, all of you are complicit in misleading the nation, leading them in the wrong direction. You've all betrayed God's people. Now, lest you think he's just going after people who have positions, look at what he says next, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. Zephaniah says, it's not just leaders who are going to be held accountable. I'm going to go through the whole city looking for people who have been complacent. What have the complacent done? Nothing, right? I mean, that's, that's literally what they've done. They've done nothing. They've made the mistake 
of thinking, listen, God is going to sit this moment out. Whatever crisis is in our country right now, I'm going to sit it out because God's going to sit it out. Nothing's going to happen, so I'll just be about my business. I'll be honest with you, um, and this may just be for me, so bear with me, but uh, like when I was studying this, like that was a moment where like I stopped, I put my Bible down because I'm like, oh, I feel like that invites some judgment into my life personally. Um, like this, this attitude that these people had, uh, because I, I see this in myself. Like I, if you know me personally, you know this is kind of my attitude. Like there's so many contentious and polarized debates where people are just yelling at one another, and I just find it so boring and meaningless. And so increasingly, with so many of the crises that face our culture, I kind of have this posture of just enjoy. Just enjoy Enjoy your little conflicts, hash it out online, do whatever. I'm going to set it out. I don't really care. I don't think God really cares. Nothing different is ever going to happen, so let's just set it out. And I, I, like I've kind of had that attitude, and at times, it, like maybe even just been like, that's probably the right attitude is to just ignore all that sort of stuff because none of it matters. But here I read this section where there are people in the city who did that, who had that mindset. This doesn't matter to me. God doesn't care. I'm just going to set it out. And God is not real happy with them. And I feel like for me personally, like that hurts my heart a little bit to read those words. Um, he's very frustrated with these people. And I think I see my face in it in this way. I, this is what I feel like God's saying to me. And if it, this is just for me, just whatever. But um, sometimes ignoring frustrating trends in society around us is not noble. It's complacent, right? It's not just being above it all. It's complacent. And that's, that's hard for me to say because I feel like it invites a little bit of judgment into my life, some conviction for me personally, but, you know, there it is. There it is. Um, back to Zephaniah. He decides to summarize with this. Verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Oh, it's pretty harsh stuff, right? Um, you keep reading the rest of the chapter. Chapter 2, equally harsh, starts to be a little bit more aimed at the people around Judah. So we're going to pause here and we'll come back to chapter 3 next week, which mercifully is not nearly as harsh. So we'll be off the hook next week. But I just want to pause and ask. You read this stuff, like he's calling these people out. He's saying there's something missing in your life. You've settled for something here. Why is he being so judgmental with his people? He's not being mean. It's not because he's a judgmental person. He just likes pointing out wrongdoing. Uh, the specific reasons, they're relevant. They're worth studying for each of these groups. But I want us to just consider the big picture. Can we just see that maybe the description is this? Each group has in some way chosen convenience and self-protection over the dream of God. 
And I think the frustration that we see is something we see all over the minor prophets with God. Is he says to his people again and again, like, I, I, I just, I promised you, if you would just opt in, I would help you every step of the way, step into this thing about being my people, about being this uh, salt and light in this kingdom of love and justice, if you just would opt into it. And he promises that generation after generation and generation after generation, they opt out. They take the path of least resistance. And for every Huldah that's out there, every Josiah or Zephaniah that's out there, there are hundreds or thousands of religious and political leaders who opted to settle for what they could control instead of stepping into the dream of God. And I think really the word that Zephaniah uses is so apt for this. This is the truth of God's people in this moment. They were complacent. It's a good word. They were complacent about God's dream. In Zephaniah, he is like he sees these complacent people and he just wants to shake them out of their complacency. Complacent, it just means self-satisfied, self-approving. Complacent is the attitude that says, this is the best I want to do. This is the best I think I can do. You know, like the work, whatever it is, the change, it's too hard, it's too much, more than I want. It's hard to step into. I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to entertain myself as the best I can. You know, it, complacent, you might think, well, complacent people are satisfied and happy. I don't think that's true. Complacent people are never happy. They're just unwilling to live with the anxiety that all spiritually growing humans must carry. That's what's true of complacency. You know, the reality of spiritual growth is this. It is hard. It is hard for every one of us. And there are wonderful moments, but there are a lot of moments that are pride-swallowing moments where we have to, be, to challenge ourselves to something more. And complacent people don't want the hard. They just don't. And I think the truth that we have to be open to seeing today is, gosh, that, that is in all of us, Right? This temptation towards complacency, we are all capable of it. In fact, I think it's probably safe for all of us in this room to assume uh, that, that in some area of our life, we are being complacent right now. And I think what is such a gift of this passage is Zephaniah is showing us just how incredibly toxic complacency can be to our souls. It is a poison. It is a poison to our spiritual life. Do you know what is, I, I think, the antidote to that poison in our spiritual life? Um, there's probably a lot of things we could say, but I, I will say this one, just reading the story of Josiah and listening to Zephaniah. I think prophets can be an antidote to the poison of complacency in our life. God gives us people like Zephaniah, people like Huldah, to keep us from drifting to this place where we just sit down and we're good. We need to be as humble as Josiah to receive and to realize that we need those prophets in our life. Um, I, you know, what's hard about prophets is none of us like harshness. Like prophets can be very harsh people. They're not, don't seem to be a lot of fun after a few months of study here. That's my conclusion. And I don't know about you, I don't care for harshness. I would rather be affirmed and celebrated. And I, like, I, I, I want to parade for every good thing I've ever done. Is that too much to ask? And just grace for all the bad things that I've ever done. That's all I want in life, just those two things. Prophets don't ever give you that. But the harshness of a prophet can be a gift to us. That's what we see in Josiah's life. 
It's a gift that we will only seek out once we become convinced that the poison of complacency runs through our veins. So maybe a question we need to ask at the end of Zephaniah 1 is just simply this. Do you have any prophets in your life? Do you have any prophets in your life? Do you have anybody who will tell you the hard truths about yourself? If you were to discover like Josiah did, oh, I, I was missing something. Who would you turn to to say, tell me the truth? What do I need to do? Or have you managed to dismiss, minimize, and silence those voices because the harshness is hard for all of us? I think Josiah and his responsive heart is so inspiring here when he had like even the hint or the inkling that he was missing something of what God had for him. His immediate response was, who can tell me the truth? Who do I need to turn to? And I think that response can be as rare in our day as it was in his. But I really think that is the difference between those who experience the kingdom life on earth as it is in heaven and those who just kind of go through the motions and never do. Will we listen to that part of us that wants to self-justify and avoid harshness and conviction? Will we take that complacency road? Or will we trust that even God's judgment is for our good? Even God's conviction is because he deeply loves us and he made us for something more. So will we seek it out? And will we pursue people who will speak truth to our complacent hearts. That's the question I have at the end of Zephaniah 1. As we close, I want to give us a chance just to interact with God on this a little bit. Um, I I had this idea. Maybe this is a space or a time where we need to collectively and individually make maybe a pledge or a promise to God. Uh, Just where we kind of commit to say, God, I'm with you on this thing. And then maybe ask him a prayerful question. Here's the pledge that I kind of wrote out. Um, And this might be something you just take with you, maybe do it every day for a while. Um, It it really is this pledge. I see this in Josiah's life. God, if I am missing something in my life you want me to see, I commit to seeking it out and receiving it in whatever form it comes. We probably all should just realize we're missing something, right? We're probably missing something. So can we seek it out? Can we receive it? Even if it doesn't come in the form we'd prefer, can we receive it? And then the question, the follow-up question is just, God, could you show me how to do that? And this is the part where maybe he'll lead you to make some plans, maybe schedule a coffee with a prophet. Maybe study the scriptures, maybe meet with a therapist. I don't know. There's a million ways to do that, but to seek it out, seek the truth. May we be like Josiah and trust God enough to receive his judgment and his conviction is an act of his divine love and seek it out. Let's go to him for a minute here.